Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. A few months ago, mainly because of Ezra Klein's recommendations on his podcast, I subscribed to Marvel Unlimited and DC Universe. And these are the two app-based subscription services that give you access to almost the entire comic book catalog of both of those publishing companies, which goes back like 80 or 90 years. And over the past few months, I've been having a lot of fun with it. Mostly I read it at the bar, um, as, you know, pint by pint, my my mind be, sort of loses firmity. It's nice to just look at the pretty pictures and uh, marvel at the action. But in particular, I've been enjoying, like, the very old stuff from, like, the 30s and the 40s, not because it's profound, a lot of it is not very good, and it's as predictable as predictable can be, but the art is so beautifully simple, I think, and the stories are so charmingly of their time. And they, they use the slang of the 30s and 40s, which I, I wonder if people were even really using. I think a lot of it was contrived because it sounds interesting. And in particular, I've been wanting to tell you about this for a while, I never got around to it. There's a particular Superman story that so enchants me from, I think it's like issue six of Action Comics. And here's the rundown. Mightier than a roaring hurricane. Stranger from the planet Krypton, the Man of Steel, Superman! Possessing remarkable physical strength, Superman fights a never-ending battle for truth and justice. Disguised as a mild-mannered newspaper reporter, Clark Kent. So in the very beginning of its run, Superman is basically, in a sense, he's what he is now and how we all know him. He's like the perfect human, kinda. And he's like, he's like, he's virtuous and he's powerful and he has that all-American spirit and like great willpower and shit. But also in the beginning, I don't think it's really the case now, but he was like a huge dick. And he, he was like violent and vindictive. And there's this one comic, the one that I'm talking about. It was before Superman had like a villain of the week. It was, He didn't have super villains, I mean. he had It was just like criminals. And there's one comic where he apprehends some bad guy, a mobster. And I think this guy had shot him or something, and of course the bullet bounces off. And once he disarms the guy, and he gets his hands on him, he wrestles him down, and he gets in his face, and he's like, You motherfucker! And the guy's like, Holy shit, Superman, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again! And Superman hears his apology, and he's like, No, that's not good enough. So he takes this guy to the docks, and he goes, You see that ship? You better be on that fucking ship first thing in the morning. It's taken off to another country. A, a fucking island, tropical country. I never want to see you again. You understand? And the mobster's like, Oh my god, yes, okay, I'll be on the ship when it takes off. I understand. So the comic, you know, flashes forward to the next day. And we see the criminal at the docks, and he's about to board this ship. He's milling about in the crowd, and suddenly someone steps up to him. What did I fucking tell you? Superman! I said get on that ship! Superman, Jillikers, I'm getting on the ship, I swear! And Superman's like, you better be, I swear to God, you better not, I better not fucking see your face. He's like really fucking intense with the guy, like really trying to, in not beyond intimidation, it's like he's trying to terrify this guy. And so the mobster, he, he gets on the ship, the ship takes off, and he's on, <laughs> he's on the boat, and he's watching Superman get smaller and smaller in the distance. And so finally, the, the, the ship is way out at sea. He goes down into his cabin, and he's relaxing. 
and he's planning what his life is going to be like in this new country. We get a vibe that when he gets there, he's probably going to do something nefarious. But what, you know, what's, what else is he going to do? He just got exiled from his country. He has nothing but the clothes on his back. So, yeah, he's probably going to have to scrimp and do some unsavory things in order to get back on his feet. So be it. So this mobster, he's thinking about all the things he's going to do when he gets to this new country. He's going to rebuild his life. He's kind of excited for it. And, you know, he orders some room service, and the room service comes up to his cabin. There's a knock on his door. He goes to open it. What are you doing here? Superman, oh my god, you told me to get on the boat. I'm here on the boat. Yeah, I came to make sure you hadn't jumped ship. Superman, my god, I did what you told me. How did you even get here? Another bit of trivia for, like, this early period of the comics. Superman could not fly at this point. He could jump over buildings and he was, you know, endlessly strong and he could deflect bullets and shit, but he couldn't fly. So it was genuinely weird that he shows up on this ship when it's so far from shore. Anyways, Superman is terrorizing this mobster, showing up at his cabin, and when I was reading it the first time I was like, okay, here's Superman. This dude is endlessly powerful, endlessly wise. This is the 1930s, so there are gulags and concentration camps, children are starving to death, and how does... Superman spend his time by he's he's just endlessly committed to fucking with this one petty criminal just <laughs> Banishing him to a foreign country and then following him there with the express intention of terrorizing him So he goes to this guy's cabin scares the shit out of him, and then he walks away, but remember Superman can't fly <laughs> Superman can't fly yet. So now he's just like on This ship he's one of the passengers now and the mobster he's terrorizing who at this point I don't think the writers intended it, but he's basically a sympathetic figure. He has a stalker, and his stalker <laughs> is all-powerful, like he's fucked. So he's on this ship, he's terrified of Superman, who will not leave him alone, and so he finds some thugs. And he goes to the thugs and he's like, Hey guys, that guy over there, the one with the cape, if you throw him overboard, I'll pay you tons of money. And the guys are like, yeah, sure, we're a bunch of tough guys. So later that night, Superman is hanging out at the front of the ship. He's like Jack and Titanic. He's alone on the stern. And this gang of roughs, they jump him and they knock him around a few times and then they overpower him and they throw him overboard. And the ship carries on through the dark of the night. Now, eventually, you know, as they're getting toward land, it turns, it turns out that the foreign country that they are headed to there's a civil war going on. So there's like military combat in the street and everyone is advised like, hey, when you get to wherever you're going, lay low. You don't want to get caught in the crossfire of this civil war. They get to shore and um, the, the thugs who attacked Superman, they go to the mobster who hired them. The guy who said, hey, go, go jump Superman and I'll pay you a lot of money. So they go up to the guy and they're like, hey, we took care of Superman, where's our money? But remember about this gangster, Superman exiled, <laughs> exiled him from his country with nothing but the clothes on his back. He doesn't have the money to pay these guys. He hired, <laughs> he hired them to save his life. And so he's like, sorry guys, I can't actually pay you. I don't have money. But these guys are legit. And they're like, oh, is that the case? You can't pay us, huh? Trying to pull the old stiffy dick on us, huh? And so they pull their knives or whatever, and they get in a circle around this gangster. And they're going to descend on him, and they're going to fuck him up. They're going to kill him to death. When suddenly, Superman appears. And it's wham, and it's bang, and it's pow. And at the end of the squabble, Superman looks over this, this pile of disarmed criminals, and he says, that ought to go to show you, fellas. Crime doesn't pay. And then the gangster, who, who is surely about to be murdered, he realizes it. He kind of renounces some of the stuff that he's done. And he realizes Superman is an agent for good, and he's grateful for it. And this is like his character arc. 
and he goes up to Superman and he's like, Dude, Superman, thank you, you saved my life, I'm so grateful. You motherfucker. Superman, what's wrong? You thought I drowned. Well, guess what? I'm enlisting you in the army. And the mobster's like, oh god, Superman, you gotta be kidding. And Superman's like, do I look like I'm fucking kidding? Obviously, he's not using profanity, but that's the vibe you get with the intensity of his language. And then Superman <laughs> forces this gangster to enlist in the army <laughs> to fight in this foreign country's civil war. Watches him enlist, watches him sign his life away, and then Superman's like, good riddance. He takes off. And so now this guy is in the, is in the army. And he's wearing their uniform, and he's training, and he's adjusting to this new way of life. But obviously, he doesn't want to be here. So he's trying to think of a way to get out of this, to escape. And then one day, he's going about his responsibilities in the barracks, and another another soldier comes up to him. And he's like, how's it going, buddy? You motherfucker. Superman, what are you doing? And Superman's like, that's right. I'm here in a soldier's disguise to make sure you don't go AWOL. You're coming to the front lines with me, where everyone gets shot. Um, it was so wonderful, and also, like, I, for the most part, on the podcast and in the blog, I don't talk that much about the comics that I'm reading. Part of it is because I feel like it's too niche, like, people are gonna tune out if I start talking about them. The story- the storylines- I, I felt this too when I was approaching them. They seem really complicated, especially with Marvel comics, which I slightly prefer. There are all these different characters, they all have long backstories, sometimes several versions of backstories taking place on different worlds, different dimensions, different timelines. But my guest on the podcast today is someone who has braved that endless complexity. Douglas Wolk's new book, released on Tuesday, is called All of the Marvels, a journey to the ends of the biggest story ever told. He's been studying and teaching and writing about comics for years now, and I would strongly recommend one of his previous books called Reading Comics, which you can get for cheap on Kindle at the moment. That book is incredibly incisive, and it's very, like, straightforward. Um, I, I, I refer to it a lot in the course of our conversation. In his new book, All of the Marvels, Wolk chronicles his reading of all 27,000 issues of Marvel Comics, half of a million pages. And his contention, or one of his many contentions in the book, is that the Marvel's collective narrative universe comprises the single largest story ever told. It is a wonderful book. Uh, it's remarkably slim for the enormity of its undertaking. And, and one of the things that Wolk celebrates in his book, and, and what I think makes it incredibly inviting, is the joy of confusion. That the confusion one feels in the Marvel Universe at the beginning, it's a confusion which is intimidating at first, but it ought to be confronted. Just as it ought to be confronted in life. Only by confronting a scary thing do you make that thing familiar and manageable and maybe friendly. The comic book medium ultimately is committed to entertaining its audience. Yes, it's understandable to be totally intimidated by the scope of its narrative, but as Wolk writes, these stories don't expect familiarity from their reader or knowledge of the background. But the comic book medium, like virtually any other artistic medium, expects of its consumer and what it rewards is curiosity. And curiosity is an attribute in which our guest today, Douglas Wolk, is apparently quite rich. Here it is, my conversation with the fearless and eternal and marvelous reader and writer, Douglas Wolk. Well, you talk about having written this book effectively twice, and I think yeah. I know where you're coming from there because I read this in tandem with your book, Reading Comics. And I also picked mm -hmm. up what I would avidly recommend to people, which is your, I don't know what, what is categorized as like the short take piece about San Diego Comic-Con that's available. Oh yeah, that, that uh, the Kindle, the Kindle... Exclusive? Sing or? Kindle singles, yes, yeah. that's what they call them, yeah. Um, reading that in tandem, and then I think you say you, you wrote this book twice and you were trying to abandon certain approaches 
that you'd been accustomed to in the past. And maybe this is through a filter of my own biases, but I read it as an effort to get away from interpretive reading and to focus on three things. The first tentpole, as I imagined it, was you were trying to focus on the story itself of these Marvel figures, the story of the storytellers. Because then in the San Diego Comic-Con piece, there's, there's a part where you... You define respectability within quotes, things like the Eisner Award, saying respectability in this kind of industry is where everyone who works really hard on something gets recognized. And of course, as you illustrate, in the Eisner Award, where that ostensibly happens, virtually no one is there. It's like the one Comic-Con event where half the room was empty. Um, so I was wondering, am I right in thinking that you are trying to move away from that more analytical writing that we saw in reading comics towards something that's a little more passionate? You know, that, that, that's a really interesting thought, and I like thinking about it that way, and I don't know that that's the case. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, the first version of the book was, it was a lot of me getting lost in the weeds. Here's a, a small thing about this that is interesting if you're already deeply invested in it. And I had written a book for myself. It was just like, it was a, me entertaining myself and me going in loops with myself and it just looking at it i realized it, it was not going to be something that could give pleasure to the people reading it it was not fun it was dull and when i hit on the idea that i wanted this book to be a guided tour that i wanted to be the person who's covered every bit of this territory and could bring in people who were either kind of familiar with it or not really familiar with it or wanted a different perspective on it and just kind of like show them potentially interesting pathways things ways they might go within the story what was there what was worth knowing about it and what were some what were things that they could take their own their own routes down that's what really opened it up for me that's what when I realized that I was writing it for people and I had to make it a pleasure for them and something that they could enjoy and get into and maybe argue with, like that's when it started working. I, I, I was wondering, the first thing I, I thought about, I had read this the summary of this on NetGalley and then I got yeah. the copy from your publicist and I saw, I was astonished by how brief it was because uh, I was anticipating some sprawling Talmudic introspective recursive three-page paragraph kind of thing. Um, but it's not that at all. And I think maybe the more specific things are relegated to the footnotes, but you do have like a footnote every second sentence. And the, yeah. foot, the footnotes are really incisive and they, they it made, makes me think of the person on sort of like the airport runway kind of steering you. If you're interested in what's being depicted here, check out comic number X, Y, and Z. But so I have here, there was something that struck me about your superhero chapter in reading comics. The readers of comic books are getting older. And this, go as you illustrate in all the Marvels, this goes back to like the 70s where Stan Lee was kind of surprised to find that the bulk of his readership was college age, as opposed yeah. to what he started with. And you talk about this really interesting friction where as comic readers get older, they're compelled toward the medium by nostalgia and by seeing something familiar, but at the same time, they want to see consequences to the character's choices. They want to see development. They want to see lasting death. And there is that friction that's very hard to navigate. Now it's clear when you wrote that book that you were well versed in comics, but I imagine you are now considerably better versed. And do you have <laughs> do you have any more 
any new ideas based on your immersion in Marvel about how that sort of very touchy and nuanced word mature has come to manifest? Because you talk about also, I don't know, the slipping of illicit sexual things into early Wonder Woman comics and what exactly do we mean when we use the word mature in reference to them. And I'm wondering how, how has Marvel, in your eyes, responded to growth and aging? That's a really good question. Uh, Marvel has tried to... So there is a phrase that gets attributed to Stanley a lot. Never found a source for it, but uh, it is that he supposedly said that what comics readers wanted was the illusion of change. The illusion of change. So something that looks like it's changing, but then maybe reverts or looks like it's changing, but you're really giving them the same thing. I think that's, I think that's kind of a cynical way of looking at it. Uh, I think there is always going to be this kind of reactionary faction of longtime readers who want things to be the way they were when they were a kid. Um, I like resisting that. Uh, you know, there can be history and what you get in the Marvel story is 60 years worth of history. You know, it's, it's never rebooted. It is this thing that's been going on for decades. And at any point you can call back to any bit of the past of it. That's amazing. That's, the past having an impact on the present. And things are going to have to change over that time. At the same time, you know, they are corporate franchises. You can't wreck it. You can't destroy it. If you're building new stories about these characters, you have to come up with stories that add to their possibilities. That is part of maturing. It is part of getting older. Part of maturing and getting older if you're a person, is that some possibilities get closed off. It's real hard to go back to Peter Parker in high school. Like, you have to just kind of start the story over, which is what happens whenever time, every time somebody does do a new version of Peter Parker. It's always Peter Parker in high school. X-Men is never, at this point, going to go back to being a story about a school for teenage superheroes. That's They've tried to go back to it a few times, made one more stab at it with Wolverine and the X-Men back in the early uh, 2000s, and that's just gone. That is not a thing you can go back to anymore. They have grown up past it. But then there's also stuff that you can't really get out of. You can't really grow past. You can't have Iron Man decide that you know, he's not going to be a tech person anymore. Iron Man, oh, no, I'm, I've, I'm giving up technology. Like, I'm giving up weapons building. I'm not gonna, he's made of armor. He is an <laughs> arms manufacturer. He is the military industrial company. You can't, like that is, you can't get past that. He will never get past that. Where I think you see the Marvel story maturing is actually in the new characters and the young characters and the things that are coming in now. Like uh, Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, she is, in some ways, a very old story. Like she, she is the Peter Parker in high school story for now, but she is a Pakistani American Muslim teenage girl in high school, trying to find her way in the world, trying to find a way to reconcile these different parts of her identity, and reconciling different parts of your identity. Like again, that's the Spider-Man riff. That is a story that's been around for sixty years. But who Kamala is is so different. 
that's the story growing up to a point where it can make something pretty major of her. Does that make sense? It does. And when, toward the end of the book, you give some time over to exploring how Marvel is, at this moment, manifesting the concerns of this generation's readers Mm -hmm. in the same way that 70s Iron Man was on the campus at Kent State. Do you feel that these comic anecdotes are just endlessly repeatable, or will there be a reckoning sometime soon? Will the cinematic expansion kind of prompt people to confront whether we were ever interested in this to begin with? I mean... Arguably, we grew past superheroes by the end of the 40s. Like, okay, the end point. of the 1940s. Like, yeah, and superhero comic books were just totally out of fashion. That's when you know, Captain America turns into Captain America's weird tales for a couple of issues, and then it's gone. There were, by the mid-50s, like what you had was there was Superman, there was Batman, there was Wonder Woman. There was, until the mid-50s, Captain Marvel being published by Fawcett. And that was it. That was it for that genre. That was, it was a little niche thing that nobody was really much interested in in anymore. Um, Can we grow past the X-Men, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, the Avengers? Uh, Maybe, but they still seem really useful as things to be part of culture right now. Like there, there is clearly a thirst for them and for what they do right now. There's this great thing that uh, Grant Morrison talks about in their book, uh, Super Gods, um, where they say that they think maybe superheroes are not even a genre. They're just an ingredient you can put into any genre to make it more interesting. Okay. I, I, I like that idea. I don't know. I totally agree with that idea, but I like that idea. You talk in more so, well, exclusively in reading comics, um, about the meta comics that started coming out when 80s 90s you can say earlier than that i mean howard the duck goes pretty meta it does seem that way in your in your little samples of it um so i I went back on marvel unlimited and i started reading (laughs) some of the very early issues of spider-man and one of the things i was particularly delighting in was the letters page but it started it started getting weird, I thought, and I th- was detecting real passive aggression and condescension in Stan Lee's tone and responding to these blocky <laughs> children's paragraphs with, with, with like scathing one-liners. And then at the end, it was like, thanks, kids, means a bunch. And you talk, the way you depict um, metacomics, it does seem like there's a weird, a very weird under-the-surface tone of resentment or anger about the convention a sort of bristling against the conventions of the genre. And we see it with Frank Miller's Dark Knight Rises to, to a degree and with, um, excuse uh, Dark Knight Returns and with Alan Moore's Watchmen. Am I, am I mistaken in thinking that the comics medium has a more conflicted reader storyteller relationship than other mediums? Or is it just that I've been mired in it lately? Well, I, mean, I, I bet other, I bet it's not the only one that has a conflicted relationship. If you go to that, the first page of the very first Spider-Man story, like the first caption is something like, like like superhero stories, confidentially, we in the business refer to them as long underwear stories. Right. Uh, But we think you'll find our Spider-Man just a bit different. Like, okay, that's interesting. It's a fascinating encapsulation of Stan Lee kind of resenting his form, resenting the reader, Uh but saying, look at what I can do. So like, yeah, you know, you've seen a lot of these. This is something different. I mean, the relationship that 
Lee had with his readers on the letter pages was really, really interesting. He was saying, you know, you see on the early letter pages, name after name turn up, who are people who went on to make comics, to work at Marvel, to replace Stan Lee. And Roy Thomas has a letter in like the fourth or fifth issue of Fantastic Four. Um, I think one of the first letters printed in Spider-Man is by Buddy Saunders, who went on to start, uh, was it Lone Star Comics, now my comic shop, which is still like one of the biggest back, back issue retailers. Uh, you see, uh, young George R.R. R. Martin back when he only had one, had one R in his name. He's 14 years old. His first published thing is a letter to Fantastic Four. You see Doug Mench and Don McGregor and Frank Miller and Walt Simonson and all of these people who went on to make comics who are kids writing in. And the tone of the letter pages is like, hey, you can be part of this grand cultural, uh, grand cultural project if you just write in, you know, join the Merry Marvel Marching Society. And that is transparently a lie. <laughs> and it's also true. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he's lying to the kids and also absolutely telling the truth. That's amazing. Um, you know, I think in Spider-Man number 600, uh, there on the letters page, the editor is like, so, you know, We've been running a letter column since Amazing Spider-Man number three. Is anybody from those days still reading? And a couple of people who had letters published in the third issue wrote into the 600th issue. One of them is a guy who, you know, he's written Fred Bronson. He wrote a bunch of books for Billboard. Uh, he writes the, the Dick Clark New Year's Eve specials now. And he was like, yeah, I was, you know, like 10 years old when I wrote. Um, and I wanted to be a writer. And that's what I became. And I still read Spider-Man. That's fantastic. Like, how many things that a 10-year-old is really attached to are still there for them 55 years later? Right. That, that, that happened... Um, well, how, how... What year was the 600th issue, roughly? Uh, it, was like, it was like... I want to say like 10 years ago. Uh, something similar happened with the Immortal Hulk. In the letters page there, there was a lot of writing in from people who you imagine are septuagenarians or octogenarians saying, like, thank you for recapturing the sense of the Hulk as a frightening thing, saying that they've been reading for decades hoping that that would be recaptured. So you have a wonderful line in the book that I think I'm going to transmute onto every novel I read, but just that the, the story doesn't want your knowledge, it wants your curiosity, and, and, and you praise confusion. And you talk about that is the point of wandering through the Marvel landscape is you're not going to know what's there, but it knows that you're confused and it's you are there to be titillated and and and, and strung along. And then I started thinking in your chapter about transmedia in reading comics and how the comic book informs a movie which has a tie-in mobile game which has a T-shirt line and they all have to look the same and stuff. And it seems that with transmedia, what they're chasing is IP. Yeah. And the, it's a different kind of confusion that you would experience if you started with the mobile game and then went to the movie and then went backward to the comic book. It would be disorienting, I think. And I was wondering if the, the, the confusion that you're celebrating and that you're encouraging your readership to confront, is that confusion inherent to the IP or to the comics medium? It's inherent to a medium that has a gigantic story that, 
you're going to have to enter someplace other than the point that spells everything out. I mean, it it also applies to soap operas. True. You know, if you turn if you turn on an episode of a soap opera now, like, do you know who all these characters are? No. It's gonna tell you eventually. Uh, there's a fantastic article a couple of years ago when when like Star Wars Episode Seven came out. I think it was on Slate, and it was reviewed by one of their film critics who had somehow never seen a Star Wars movie before. And, like, she just, you know, she hadn't been interested at the time, like, and it had just never really been a thing for her, and she was curious, okay, fine, I'll go to a Star Wars. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, she went to see it on opening night in the theaters, and what she said was, there are all these moments where suddenly the audience erupted into cheers and i didn't understand why like there would there was like an old wrecked spaceship that shows up in the distance and everybody flips out over it that's really interesting it was interesting to her that's interesting to me um but that also piqued her curiosity like what is this wrecked old spaceship that we're getting really excited about who is this robot like a billion other robots that we've seen so far in the movie but this is the one that everybody gasps when we suddenly see like right. this robot's face that's the same kind of thing and that kind of curiosity is also a marketing tool mm. obviously like you want to know more you find out more um marketing tools can be turned into interesting art sometimes sometimes they're just marketing tools um I was thinking a couple days ago about, uh, so did you ever see the Contest of Champions comic from like five years ago? Hmm. No. It is a comic that is based on a mobile game that is based on a comic. Uh, there was a, <laughs> yeah. uh, there was a like, early 80s comic called C Contest of Champions that was supposed to be a tie-in to the 1980 Summer Olympics. Uh, and then the U.S. pulled out of the 1980 Summer Olympics. Right. There had already been like a Winter Olympic special uh, published. And there had been a miscommunication with uh, the artist uh, who did not get the message that uh, they were supposed to stop work on it because it had been called off. So it all got drawn. And it sat in a drawer for a couple of years. And then it got repurposed as a miniseries called Contest of Champions that had like a billion characters in it. And um, there became, I guess, in the mid 2010s, a mobile game called Contest of Champions that was, you got all these characters and you get to just stick them together and make them fight. Great. And so there is a tie-in comic with this Contest of Champions, and it's delightful. It is so much fun. It is, it ends up being focused on a character called Outlaw, who is the British Punisher. The British Punisher. Outlaw. Uh, who had been seen in like three or four comics 20 years earlier. Not since. And the story of this comic is about him finding his path to nonviolence. What? It's so much fun. It's so much fun. And that's a absolutely commercial remit. It is exploitation piled on exploitation. And it's great. It's super fun. You do you do talk 
well, well, the vibe that I remember getting um, in reading specifically the superhero chapter of mm-hmm. um, reading comics, because that's the one that goes back so far, is about how, you know, just because these things, they were the height of ephemera. That, As you point out, Stan, these guys did not expect these books to last. They were supposed to be thrown out, that the material was not durable. But just because they did not intend to bestow profundity on these documents doesn't mean that they accru- did not accrue profundity mm-hmm. in their own way to say nothing of of the delight of them that you mentioned i think beautifully in the final chapter you've got a kid who is, your son is a teenager yeah so what, what, what i thought was a beautiful structural thing about the book is i was having whiplash throughout because we were jumping from talking about the recurrence of a certain singer and how music manifests and mm-hmm. then how presidents manifest and then had thor's progression and you it's so clearly you wandering through a maze looking this way and that and it's all about go deeper into the maze deeper into the maze and then the last chapter is about you bringing the maze into your home and into your relationship with your son which i thought was wonderful but because your son is so young i imagine he kind of came into the world when there were already five or six iterations of cinematic batmans and when (laughs) you did you walk him through those and was there the same glee that he had in going through the comp reconstructing the various iterations of these figures on the page you know, comics were the, the long-running, complicated stories were not an interest of his until he started getting into the comics. And like I say, I mean, he's still, you know, he is a sing. He is interested in exactly one of those complicated stories. He likes the Marvel stuff. He doesn't really care about Batman. It's fine. Like he tried reading a little. He's like, eh, you know, it's fine. That's not. It's not my deal. Great. Okay. You like like what you like, kid. Uh, he does love One Piece. He has been, I think he's, what, like 80 volumes into One Piece at this point. Oh, what is One Piece? Uh, is that a DC? It's inc- it is, no, it's an incredibly popular manga series that okay. has been going on for a long time. Like, he's, he's, he's a manga kid. He's a video game kid. What's, there's some hysterically weird manga series that he showed me, like, a plot summary video of that was like, you know, let's go through you know, 80 volumes of this in five minutes. Um, but American comics, eh, not so much, aside from the Marvel stuff, which he just continues to eat up. Great. Okay. Okay, well, did, did you, uh, does it show any interest in these narratives as movies? Like, Yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we watch the MCU TV shows, actually, with my wife. Um, and we've we've been and we've been told movies like it, it's it's now like going to the movies and going to, or watching the TV shows like it's our it's our family thing, um, it's a thing that we do together and it's it's really fun and of course like because of the way his brain works he loves pointing out every tiny little continuity error, you know, shot to shot whatever, you go kid that's you, <laughs> enjoy it. So as I mentioned a moment ago, you do have a, you call, you refer to them as interludes in the book. There's the one about yeah. the appearance, the recurring appearance of pop stars in comic books and the recurrence of presidents in these things. And I was wondering if you, in your deep dive, did you find sort of like great thesis papers waiting to be written? Like along those lines, is there another interesting thread? You had musicians, you had presidents. Was there another recurring thing like the significant pizza always appears with this in mind or something like that there are a few things that i I kept track of like i I kept a a running tumbler while i was uh 
while I was doing all the reading. Just oh. any time. Actually, two tumblers. But uh, there's a tumbler that's all of marvels.tumblr.com where just any time I ran across a panel that seemed interesting, like, okay, I'll put that there. Maybe maybe they'll add up to something. Um, and then there's another one that uh, Sterling and I did together that was marvelba.tumblr.com, which is just any time somebody said oh, right. bah. Yeah. But, uh, and there were things that I noticed, like, turned up a lot. Um, not necessarily consciously. There are a lot of really interesting images of Times Square. Hmm. And it's usually Times Square transformed somehow or under attack or not quite the way we know it, but also recognizably Times Square. Uh, there are a lot of images of the Statue of Liberty that turn up over time. Uh, there's a I did like a series for Hilobrow, my friend Josh Glenn's site, that was interesting diseases that show up in the Marvel story. Hmm. I think I kept tra- kept track of in the '80s. There's like some new street drug that's turning up in comics like every three months. Like you can't use any of the ones that are really there, so let's come up with a, a drug called Glow. You know? <laughs> Or a drug called Rave, you know, like things like that. Um, there's, oh, what was the other thing? Oh, there was a thing I was keeping track of for a while, uh, which was just, I think the hashtag for it is fortunately they survived, which was any time that there's a panel where like somebody is, like a lot of people are obviously getting killed and maybe the comics code stepped in or something else, but like, oh no, fortunately they all, they all managed to parachute to safety. No, they didn't. Those dudes are dead. Uh, there's a, I think, a New Mutant story where like Ilyana is just like cut somebody in half with her sword, and the thought balloon is like, "Wow, I almost really injured that person." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, they survived. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that um, Stan Lee resuscitates the the students of Kent State, the four students who were killed. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. This is so inviting, and obviously that's a major theme in your book is that the Marvel universe is itself incredibly inviting. And so I'm wondering about structure, how you present your story, how you present your language in such a way and what, what trained you, or is this your natural voice to sort of be able to communicate these things to an outsider who's maybe just curious enough to listen? I mean, I think I might've even picked up a little of it from reading all those comics. Like, not the particular tone of particular writers, but the way that you can be kind of stealth inviting, the way that you can explain stuff in a way that doesn't feel explainy, if you're doing okay. it right. Uh, and that's, that is the storyteller's trick. Uh, right now I'm teaching a comics history class at Portland State, and you know, some of my students are super interested in comics, and some of them just need one more English credit for their degree. Uh, I'm here, so I don't get fined. Uh, (laughs) And finding out, okay, thinking about ways to talk that they will be receptive to, thinking about what they want to get out of this, thinking about what is going to make them enjoy it and make them pay attention is the same thing as you do with with readers like i've written for general interest magazines i've written for comic specific things i've written for music magazines and just finding a way to meet the readers where they live is super hard and also super necessary uh and making sure that i don't just wander off and start babbling in text i had 
three friends in particular who I sent copies of, of uh, every chapter to and got their feedback and rewrote. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, one of them is deeply, deeply in comics. One of them is you know a little bit reads a few things into X Men, and one of them is not a comics person at all. And what I told them all is just put a check mark next to anything where you started losing attention, where you start drifting off, where you're like, why, why am I, why am I reading this? Did you find a motif? Um, no, I just found I did it a lot. <laughs> uh, and like, okay, that gets cut or that gets condensed or that gets made funnier. Humor is a weapon or that gets made funnier. And it also becomes a footnote that is getting in the way of the flow here. You can get rid of it if you want. You can find a way to make it hold people's attention, but that can't stay the way it is. And that's what I had to do and keep doing, and I hope it worked. It certainly appears to have worked. Are there sneers in academia about a class that takes comics seriously? Do you get it from students or from colleagues? I have not ever gotten that. Um, I've only been teaching, like, I'm not a PhD. I don't even have a master's degree. Um, I've been teaching as an adjunct for like uh, seven, eight years, something like that. Uh, never gotten any kind of pushback at all. I'm sure it was not always that way. I have a lot of people who came before me to thank for that. But right now, like, it's just, you know, approach a thing rigorously, you're good. <laughs> 